I was about 26 years old, uh, 26 and a half, somewhere in there, and I had just recently been hired uh, by a church. This was kind of my first you know, full-time vocational pastoral ministry. I came on as an associate pastor, and uh, this was a church that in that particular area uh, up in Canada where we lived back in the early 90s, that this was a church that a lot of people wanted to be a part of, and there were a lot of people who wanted this position. Now, in God's uh, ways and in mercy and in His grace and how He orchestrated things, I ended up getting this position. There were 150 applications for this position, and I ended up getting this particular position. And I thought, that's pretty cool. And then I found out because the way that this particular church kind of approved things was a congregational vote. So you went through the whole process of candidating, interviews, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, the congregation or church members had to approve and vote in the affirmative for you to be on staff. And so that happened. And then I found out afterwards that this was the first time ever in this church's history that they had a unanimous vote on any big issue. So I was kind of feeling, you know, at the top of my game, on top of the world. Yeah, there was some pride going on, and uh, things were going very well for me as my ministry began as an associate pastor working alongside another lead pastor in a great part of the country and in a great church. Flash forward about a year, a year and three months into the future. Things between myself and the lead pastor uh, there was some tension. There was some conflict. And a lot of it was based on we were just wired differently. I mean, I was a young guy, 26 years old. He was probably 15 years my senior. And he was just wired differently uh, than I was. And I was wired differently than he was. And so it was kind of like a marriage between these two pastors. And things were starting to get a little challenging and it was beginning to impact ministry. And we thought, hey, let's deal with this. Let's address this. So fortunately, uh, in our context, uh, we had what's called kind of an area executive pastor minister that oversaw a number of churches, kind of like a bishop in other denominations. So he came into the situation and he said, hey, we've got two two great leaders here. Uh, we, can, we can correct this. We can address this. And so what they did in partnership with our leadership team and our eldership, kind of a plan, a six-month plan that was very intentional, that was very structured, that was very strategic, that would be monitored, that we'd be accountable to, so that we could get on the same page and that we really could be moving into kingdom ministry. And that was grateful for me because I'm a structured guy and I like things like, and so that was very helpful to me. And so I thought, great. Uh, I mean, it was, it was a tough time, and it was hard, and we needed to break through and was very grateful for this process that we began. About two weeks into this process, uh, two elders got a hold of me, and they said, hey, Alan, we want to talk with you. Can we meet in your office this afternoon? And I said, sure. And in my mind, I'm going, we're probably just going to talk about this process, how we're doing. I mean, we just kick-started this. It's only been two weeks in. So it was some kind of update, I would imagine, that was going to come from them. So that afternoon, in my office with two of these elders, and basically what happens is this. The chair of the elders looks at me, and he says, you're done. You're terminated. We're firing you. Are you preaching this Sunday? I thought to myself, just beginning to experience so much shock, uh, I think I am. I think I'm scheduled to preach. You're not preaching. And he says, if you say anything to anyone about this, you will lose your severance package. So it was basically a gag order. Now, in that moment, and I'm thinking to myself, can churches do this? 
Can, can churches actually do this? I mean, I had heard the statement kind of growing up in ministry that, you know, the church is the only army that wounds its own. But I tell you, in that moment, I was feeling pretty wounded and pretty much in shock and in pain. And, and if you've been there, you understand that. And so I went home uh, to Gloria. We'd been married about three, four years. Our son Matthew was about a year old, and we just found out that she was pregnant with Michaela, our daughter. And it was like, I mean, we, we descended into a hell that I wouldn't wish upon anyone. So we went through this process of just kind of recovering from this, moving on. And there's a lot to the story that I'm not telling you, but let me flash forward about eight months or so into the future. In that season, as an individual who felt called to ministry and was called to pastoral ministry, teaching ministry in the church, that there was a point that we said, do we really want to continue? I mean, is this what we're up against? Because this is not something that I want to take myself, my family, or anyone through. And so I began to think about this whole thing of forgiveness because I knew that there was a lot of unforgiveness inside of me, a lot of anger, a lot of rage, and just a sense of, of, of vengeance of wanting to get back to certain individuals in that context. And so I decided and, and decided to make a choice that if I'm going to be in this kind of ministry, if I'm going to call myself a Christ follower, I need to learn something about this deal called forgiveness and to walk that out and to take the high road. And so eight months into the future from that situation, uh, I decided to meet with that lead pastor who, who was key in, in initiating this with another pastor who, who really knew me, who really knew him, who knew what was going on, and I said, I just want to take the upper road, and I just want to ask for forgiveness. Is so there anything that I have done that was wrong in that season? And there was a part of me that I felt violated, that I felt abused, because we had dishonored this process of moving forward and trying to establish healing and correction, but chose not to at the very front of the process. And so I met with him. We were in a restaurant, and uh, he's sitting across me, and then the, the pastor, who's kind of like the mediator, is there. And I said, you know, to this guy, I said his name, and I said, you know, if there's anything that I did that hurt you, that harmed you, uh, that was in any way undermined you, I am so sorry. Please forgive me. And he looked at me, and he said, I'm not going to forgive you. I am not going to forgive you. Now, it was hard enough to go through the process but then to face this individual and to say, I'm going to take ownership, and I'm going to say, I am sorry, and literally said, no, I'm not forgiving you. I mean, the, the other pastor just could not compute, believe what was going on. Now, in that season of time, God taught me a lot of things that has served me well in the years to come in ministry. Because a lot of stuff went sideways in ministry as you deal with people, as you encounter people. But I've had to come to the conclusion that the only way forward is through forgiveness. Even when someone looks at you and says, I don't forgive you. You would have thought I shot his wife. 
or something ridiculous like that, and it really wasn't. And so I began to think, and I continued to think, that how do people who go through, and, and my situation and our situation was tough, but how about people who, for example, who've been through the evils and the darkness and, and the hell of things like Auschwitz, decades later, come face to face with the perpetuators of that evil, of that hell, and are able to say, I forgive you. How is that possible to be a people who walk in forgiveness? Because it is my conviction, it is my belief that central to the Christian faith, that central to the Jesus way is forgiveness. Because that is the only way forward into the future. That is the only way towards reconciliation. That is the only way towards healing and restoration. No matter how dark, no matter how evil, the pain, or what was done against you. And so this morning, I want to look at this issue of, of forgiveness, knowing that in my story, I've experienced some things. And, and to this day, uh, he may have forgiven me. I mean, this is 25, 26 years ago. Uh, but it still influences and shapes how I think about forgiveness and unforgiveness. And I think that this is the principle. And we think if you were here last week, again, another mind-blowing story of forgiveness and healing. If you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to listen to the teaching of last week by David and Caron Loveless, where David had a moral failing, had an affair, and through this process, I mean, you, you heard the story where Caron, you know, almost a year later after the news uh, came forth and, and the hell and the pain and the anguish that they went through, how she talks about, you know, she cups David's face with her hands and she says, I forgive you. Powerful. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can empower that. And some of us this morning are stuck in a place of unforgiveness. How can we get unstuck so that we can experience all the more what God has for us, but then to be able to give the gift of forgiveness to others because that is the gift that God has given us. And the principle is this. The big idea is this, is that forgiven people forgive. Forgiven people forgive. And so if you're having a hard time forgiving, whatever that context is, whatever that situation is, maybe we need to, you need to, we need to step back and go, what does it mean to be forgiven in Christ? Because you can't separate the two, as we'll see today in a parable, that being forgiven means you will be forgiving. And it's a process, and it's hard, and it doesn't happen overnight. I get it. But how do we capture this understanding of what it means to be forgiven. A few quick scriptures. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, and they're not on your screen, uh, but just listen to what Paul is saying here. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 14. Again, trying to capture that we are forgiven by God, that this is an issue of identity, that as followers of Christ, our identity is love by Him, which clearly means that we are forgiven by Him. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. 
I mean, you were dead. I mean, you had no hope to respond. You had no hope to confess. You had no hope to come to God and say, please have mercy on me. You were dead. You were uncircumcised in your flesh, which meant to those people back then, you had no hope. But in the midst of that, in the midst of our darkness, in the midst of our death, in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our pain, God made us alive in Christ, and He, as the text goes on, forgave us all our sins. Not some, all of our sins, past, present, future. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. The essence of God is love. A big part of the essence of love, if you go to 1 Corinthians 13, is that it keeps no record of what? It keeps no record of wrong. That's the essence of love. I'm going to keep no record of wrong because I want you to be healed and restored from your brokenness and your pain. So I extend forgiveness to you. You are forgiven because of what Christ has done. I mean, even Jesus' words on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. I don't think God came down. God the Father said, uh-uh. I think he said, yes. That as Christ is dying on the cross, the Spirit is there, the Father is there, ever-present, and saying, we forgive humanity because of what Christ has done. Now, the choice is up to us to walk into and to experience that forgiveness and then to extend it to others by forgiving others. Now, recognize it's a process. My sense is here, and we're going to read a parable here real quickly, and it's a tough parable that if we, if we don't understand it correctly can really mess us up. But before we go there, there is this passage, and, and we were talking about it as a staff. We're going through a book on uh, uh, God's Love uh, by Jack Frost, and we're just having some great conversations as a staff as we walk through this book. But there is this uh, passage in First uh, John that says, Make my love complete. This is God speaking. Make my love complete by loving one another. I will put the word forgiveness or forgive in there because love is forgiving. Make my forgiveness complete by what? Forgiving each other. There is a sense that, yes, God has forgiven us. The debt has been canceled. There are no debts that are owed be between us and God. It's been taken care of. The choice is, do you want to walk in it and experience it, or do you want to experience the hell that is a consequence of not walking in that? And so, but I think there's a place where we begin to experience more of the forgiveness of God not that it's incomplete from his perspective, but I think we begin to experience more forgiveness and taste the forgiveness of God as we forgive each other and experience forgiveness among each other. And so, make my forgiveness complete by forgiving each other. And I, I mean, God, the more I think about it, uh, I mean, imagine as, as a student, you've just finished university and you've got like $50,000 of debt and it's just... I mean, does that debt kind of bring you freedom? Does that debt kind of bring you liberty? Does that debt kind of bring you joy? I mean, I have not ever heard a student come up and say, I've got this debt. This is so exciting. It's going to set me up for success. 
But imagine if you do have a significant student loan debt, and someone comes along and says, I'm just going to bless you, I'm going to gift you, and just wipes that debt away. Amen? Yes. <laughs> or you've got this mortgage that, man, we, we just can't get ahead. Only if we could, didn't have this mortgage that we could move forward. And someone comes along and says, I'm going to pay for your mortgage. I'm going to take care of it. It's done. I mean, wouldn't that be liberating? Wouldn't that be fun? Wouldn't that be exciting? Okay, well, good. I know there's someone that owns a house over here that would be really excited if their mortgage was paid for. And, and I mean, that's, that's, that's the kingdom mentality. I mean, when Jesus comes and he says uh, in that pronouncement in Luke chapter 4, I mean, this is what I've come to give, you know, liberty uh, to those that are in bondage, to give sight to the blind, you know, to set the oppressed free. And then he pronounces the year of Jubilee has begun. And the year of Jubilee in the Jewish context is that every seven years that, and then ultimately the big one on the 50th year, where all debts are canceled. I mean, just all debts are canceled. I mean, imagine our, uh, I even hate to use the word president just because it just initiates so much controversy these days, but just imagine our president or, uh, you know, our government just saying, all debts are wiped out. All debts. All of them. <laughs> that would be great, wouldn't it? Now, Jesus, he comes and what he does is he says, my salvation even though the Jewish uh, culture every seven years and ultimately every 50 years, all debts are wiped away, the year of Jubilee, that God is saying, look, my salvation, all that I offer to you that as you enter my relationship, it's a perpetual year of Jubilee. It's an ongoing year of Jubilee that all debts are gone, canceled, and there will never be a debt between you and God, ever. Now, what about between you and me? this parable, and it's one of the toughest parables ever. I was praying about this, and, and I, I thought of a verse that God kind of highlighted, and it was like, yeah, I think that's great. But then I went to that verse, and I went, oh, it's connected to this parable. Oh, I don't really like this parable. Maybe I shouldn't preach on it because it's a real tough one. <laughs> uh, but God said, no, no, uh, deal with it. So I'm dealing with it, and you'll understand when I read the parable. It's a parable of the unmerciful servant, Okay. Now, that, that could be a little problematic for some, but let me read it to you. It's on the screen, and let me say a few things about it, and then we'll move to a time of prayer. Parable of the Unmerciful Servant. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. Now, let me park here. In Jewish context, it was traditional that you did it three times. Like three strikes and you're out. That was kind of like, we'll forgive people up to three times. Now, Peter is coming along and trying to be a bit of the smart aleck because at the beginning of Matthew chapter 18, Peter's asking the question, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Who's the greatest in the kingdom here? So there's an issue of pride that Peter has, and Jesus is dealing with that pride, and he's dealing with it in a very, uh, very kind of chess-like way where he is taking Peter along for a ride and kind of using some of his terrain and some of his weaponry on on him, and just he's, he's really playing with Peter, but in order that Peter would be awakened ultimately to the power of how he's been forgiven and what he is supposed to do as he looks towards others and forgives others. So Peter comes along and says, well, is it seven times? I mean, seven was kind of a perfect, complete number. He says, how about seven times? I mean, we've got we've to draw the line somewhere, right? So let's go with seven. Sorry about that. And Jesus, he says, I tell you, not 
seven times, but 77 times, or as some other translations say, 70 times seven. Now, for you, it's like, okay, he's just kind of increased it from seven to 490. No, Jesus is using an expression, 70 times seven, or 77. He's saying, look, folks, there is no limit. There is absolutely no limit to forgiving people. That's what he's saying, that's what he's communicating, and that is what is meant by that 77 or 70 times 7. The Jews would have got it, Peter would have got it, and it's like, oh my goodness, you mean there's no limit? There's no limit whatsoever to forgiving people? Jesus says, absolutely not. Now, to prove my point, let me tell you a parable. Therefore, he goes on, Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle an account with his servant. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Let me park there. 10,000 bags of gold. There's some people that don't have much to do during the day, so they tried to figure out what this meant in our everyday uh, current economy. And so what that calculation came to is this, that based on average uh, income, based on inflation, all that, that amount would take, now listen to me, two hundred thousand years to repay. Two hundred thousand years to repay. That is a debt that you cannot repay. You can't. So that's what's going on here. People would have gone, oh my goodness. I mean, this is like the national debt. And, and they're saying, no one can repay that as an individual, let alone the country. You, you just can't. And so he goes on. He owed him 10,000 bags of gold. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Now, there's some ridiculousness going on here that we have to be very careful and attuned to. Jesus is using some hyperbole. He's using some irony to get a point across to Peter. And if you don't see it, you'll, you'll, you'll misunderstand and you'll go sideways on what this particular parable is all about. And this servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. That'd be like having a thousand dollars debt on your credit card. Kind of a deal. I mean, it was insignificant. It was a debt that could easily be taken care of. So what he does, he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you. In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed, which he couldn't. There's irony again going on here. And then Jesus kind of drops this bomb, so to speak, and he says, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Oh, that hurts. That is a, it, it, it's, it's a way, it's a form of speech that Jesus is creating kind of like a shock and awe moment for Peter. Now, you can go to some crazy spots here, 
because God ultimately is not a God that comes up to you and you have to beg and then God in turn shows pity on you and cancels all your debts and you go up and you can't forgive someone and he takes it all back. That's not how God operates. But God is communicated and demonstrated in such a way in this parable because Jesus is wanting to communicate something to Peter that we may not get because we're from a different culture. He wants to shock Peter. He wants to kind of create some irony and some, it's kind of like when Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. He doesn't want you to pluck your eye out. He doesn't want you to chop your hand. He's trying to communicate something in a way that you'll get it. And sometimes if we look at parables and we, and we stretch the details too much, we can misunderstand what Jesus is trying to say. Now, there's a lot more that has to be said and discussed to kind of understand the context and the nature of parables that I can't go into today just because of time. So, Maybe at some point down the road we can do that. Just take me up for coffee, take me up for dinner, uh, something like that, and we'll have the conversation, and we'll do it. Really. I mean, you don't have to take me up for dinner. You don't have to take me up for coffee. Just take me out somewhere, and we'll have a conversation, and we can go into detail about it. But there's a statement here uh, as it relates to what I think Jesus is trying to communicate here. And, and there's a lot of questions, and, and there's some things that I'm kind of like, God, I'm not too sure about this. But a guy by the name of Robert Kappen, he's passed away, an Episcopal priest, has written a number of things, and has written some great stuff about the parables of Jesus, and he says this, and I don't know if I agree with him, but the statement does something that makes us go in a direction which I think is where the parable wants us to go when it comes to forgiving others. He says this, there is only one unpardonable sin, and that is withholding pardon from others. There is only one unpardonable sin. And that is holding pardon from others. The point of this parable in its, in its kind of rawness, in its, in its, in its an aggression, and in, in the form of, wow, this is, this is like really tough. This is really hard. Jesus is saying this, and I think this is all he's trying to say through this parable. And again, you have to look at all of Matthew 18 and what's going on and what the, the story of Peter and where he's at to really understand this. But what he's saying is, look, there is a debt that you could never pay, that God forgave in Christ. And he wants us, Jesus wants us to know how huge and unpayable that debt is. And that out of that place, that when we are captured by how much we have been forgiven, and the debt that has been erased, has been annihilated, or as Jesus says, takes away the sins of the world, has just taken it away clean the slate, that out of that place that you can then, it would be stupid, it would be foolish, it would be crazy not to extend forgiveness to someone else. Now, I'm not in any way belittling the pain that you've been through where you're in, 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 in a process of trying to forgive someone. Or it's like, man, I don't want to forgive that person. I want to hold that back. But I, I, I found that early in life, even though it was hard, that when you harbor unforgiveness, it's kind of like, I want to give that person rat poison and kill them, but in your unforgiveness, it's like you're actually eating the rat poison that you're wanting to give to someone else. It, it's killing you. It's destroying you. 
And the only way that you can move away from that place of unforgiveness is by being awakened to how much God loves you, how much God forgives you, and that even in the stupidity of things that we've done and continue to do, He still loves us, but are we going to press forward into His unforgiveness and experience it in such a way that we are propelled to give it to others? Because at the heart of healing and restoration between us and God and others is forgiveness. And the only way to do that kind of divine activity is to understand and to experience and to encounter the divine one who's given us that kind of forgiveness, a forgiveness that we will never fully understand because it's so, so, so huge. Having said that, let's stop there and let's all stand.